Which brings us to Reichlin. You know, Aaron, why don't you tell us a little bit more about who this guy is? You know, he's uh, certainly not your typical Pennsylvania politician. This is not that kind of guy. Yeah, absolutely not. So he's a uh, you know former military, and we kind of have known for a bit that he was uh, associated with Flint. But we've recently learned um, a couple of other things about his recent history. You know, in, in an interview that he did, uh, I forget the outlet, uh, the right wing outlet that he was speaking with, but uh, he did an interview where um, they identified him as being an employee of Flint. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a confirmation of the connection that we had seen, right? Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, by the way, in that same interview, I thought it was interesting. You know, I, I'm not sure how familiar folks are with Flynn's backstory. I think your viewers here are, are are really aware of it. But, you know, and his kind of uh, history with Russia and his strange affinity for them and, you know, similar to Trump. And who among uh, us hasn't had dinner with uh, with Putin at, a, at an RT <laughs> right. conference? We've all been there. Right. Everyone's done that. <laughs> Just $50,000. Right. $50, right. Uh, well, I only got up as high as uh, surgeon, you know, the GRU director. So I, oh, yeah. I didn't get, get to go. Man, well, you know, so. there's something to aspire to. Not that important. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so, you know, we see this history where Flynn starts kind of just basically repeating Russian talking points, like about NATO and things like that. Same that Trump does. But it was interesting in this interview that Raiklin described Flynn's dissatisfaction with and departure from the Obama White House in an interesting way. Um, the way he described it, and he's a family friend of Flynn's and an employee, right? So it's interesting to hear him say that Flynn essentially was upset that Obama was allowing folks in Afghanistan to run Russia out of the Middle East, to allow ISIS to run Russia out of the Middle East. He specifically said that, and that's what Flynn was upset about. Hmm. And I thought that was really, really interesting, right? I mean, it kind of aligns with some other things. I, I'm not, you know, this is Reichland saying it on a right wing talk show. So, you know, grain of salt, but I thought it was really interesting and it does align with some of the things we already knew about Flynn, but it's certainly, we shouldn't let's just pause you for a second and talk about Obama and Flynn. I mean, this is a really serious personal vendetta that Flynn has. I mean, it's not something that, you know, is, you know, generations old is something that happened between him and the former president of the United States. And it involved him being fired quite publicly for, you know, essentially losing it. I mean, that's the nice, colloquial way of saying that, you know, why he lost his position, but he apparently became really unstable in his job and was fired by Obama, you know, publicly, but was still allowed to sort of leave without, uh, you know, losing his uh, pensions or whatever. So he got all of that. But it's certainly, you know, you can't ignore that as you're looking at this. This is very personal for Flynn and his uh, cohorts there. It very much is. And well, I mean, you know, in, Flynn, in many ways, you know, Flynn is like a disgruntled employee that mm. also knows how to do network insurgency and psyops. <laughs> like it's, it's the worst possible situation to have like a disgruntled employee with that skill set, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a bigger story here around U.S. counterintelligence and how we manage people so as to prevent them becoming radicalized by third party countries, as well as just being radicalized on their own. And, you know, if you look at all of the different people that have been helping to drive this set of maneuvers, so many of them are ex-intelligence and ex-military. Mm-hmm. And we have done a horrible, horrible job at protecting those people from becoming radicalized and turned against the best interests of the country. So, you know, that's something that we need to figure out systemically here. And, you know, I, I think that that's a very underlooked aspect of, mm-hmm. of this situation. I think you're right. I think it's, you know, you look at the uh, First Amendment Praetorians and, and their leadership there. There are a lot of disgruntled people from Afghanistan. Uh, the entire Flynn family is really, you know, in charge of all of what's been going on, it seems, for operationally. And 
that's, you know, the fact that it's his family that it's doing it, it just does feel like it's a very personal, but also deeply disturbing thing that they were sucked into what it seems to be a foreign psyop of some sort, you know, it doesn't seem like well, this all comes from Afghanistan, it's all right there on the border. Yeah, on the subject of Flint's family, um, you know, there's been a little bit of tension around this because his brother is now in charge of the U.S. Army mm -hmm. Pacific Command, which is the largest, mm -hmm. you know, army command there is and has direct interface with China. You know, a misstep there or some kind of bad faith action could easily escalate into some kind of very unpleasant situation. Mm -hmm. So when you look at Flynn's family and the fact that he's got several brothers and various other relationships, his wife and sister-in-law and all these people that are like all rooting for him and fighting like a Flynn. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Charles Flynn running the frickin' Army Pacific Command. It just raises questions. Now, it may well be that Charles Flynn is the only, you know, good apple in the bunch, and he's aghast and appalled at all of this, but the fact that he was in the room on January 6th when the decision was made at the Pentagon not to send National Guard troops for over three hours, uh, and that yeah. the Army lied about that fact, it raises questions. So on the one hand, I don't intend to smear Charles Flynn's perfectly good Army career or his name, but from a counterintelligence standpoint, this doesn't read very well. And certainly from an investigatory standpoint, you would want to have every possible assurance that he was in no way involved in this and is no way sympathetic to his family's uh, shared project, if you will. For a man who's concerned so much about optics, the optics of that certainly do not look great. And, you know, this one post by Reichlin here, this is, I think, for, it's not from Twitter, it's from Parler or one of those other uh, sort of right-wing versions of Twitter. Yeah. In it, he's under the Flynn uh, picture there, it says, the most respected general amongst patriots since George Washington. Traders tremble in fear when his name is mentioned, Michael Flynn. And then it says, I wonder if he's going to come out of retirement. I mean, another sort of nod, not so subtle nod to this idea that Flynn and his family or Flynn himself you know, he's going to be leading these patriots out of into some sort of war, into some sort of civil disobedience, into I don't know what they're threatening with all this coded language. But it's not, it certainly doesn't indicate peaceful insurrection or peaceful protest. These guys are armed and dangerous. Absolutely. And, you know, just to go back to the Reichland uh, connection mm -hmm. in his recent history, because, you know, photos with him and connections to him are interesting, because uh, we also recently learned that, or at least according to one of his resumes, uh, he was at DIA at the same time Flynn was. He actually started there in 2012. Oh, really? But continued there after Flynn left. And he was there until, I could be wrong about this, but I want to say until 2018. That wow. seems a little late, so that may not be right. But he was there well after Flynn had been fired, um, still working at DIA. I, I'm not sure what his position was. Uh, this is, again, just based on a blurb and a resume of his that we had found listed. But uh, yeah, not to so read too much into well. in, into him. I mean, but you know, he does speak Russian fluently. Maybe that's not a big deal. Maybe that just happens because you're in that you know line of work. But I don't know if his history is with is Russian. I'm not sure if his family is Russian. But he it's was, certainly he was born in the Soviet Union, if I oh, recall. Okay, so there you go. Yeah, and uh, any crowdfunded yeah. crowdfunded an effort to to create a movie about Putin that would kind of lionize Putin a little bit. So that was really interesting oh, as well. And the Green Beret here in the United States, and then you say now work to DIA. I mean, it's a oh boy. That's not a. Wow. That's a pretty disturbing How picture of some security clearance. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. How do you get that? Um, but it's very yeah. troubling. I mean, this guy's close to people like Youngkin. He's getting Youngkin elected. He's he's you know, he's running around doing campaign work for Youngkin, the new Virginia governor. Um, he'll certainly be involved in every election uh going forward if he's allowed to, you know, it looks like he could be maybe under the influence of a foreign country doing all these things and so close to our political op operation of the Republican Party. 
Well, you know, it's interesting to think about foreign interference and things like that, but I wonder if it's somehow just merged back into Flynn has the tool set to do this. He has the paramilitary around him. He's got people who are following him that have been through, you know, irregular warfare techniques. Does it need to be foreign anymore at this point? Does it need to be just finding your own sort of divisiveness within the country and, and using those as wedge points? I hear that a lot, and I have trouble with that because I do think it matters that there's a foreign involvement. I mean, certainly may not even exist if there wasn't foreign involvement. I understand that there's a lot of division in a country nevertheless, but I don't think these things organically flare up, and maybe they can, but I don't think they organically flare up. I think it's, it's very easy to dismiss the foreign influence because it's meant to be hidden, and it is hidden quite well. But it certainly exists. I mean, yeah. you know, to, to dismiss it or to, to ignore its impact is quite dangerous, I think, because I, I, I really don't know if this would be happening to America if Russia and China weren't actively um, working on, and others working on the periphery to foment this division. Yeah, I, I agree I would just with you. I don't that. want you to think that, you know, I, I've in any way am poo-pooing away the foreign, yeah. you know, the, the foreign part of this. Um, sure. Because absolutely, without it, then none of this is occurring. Yeah. No, I just wanted to add to that that the history here is so clear in terms of the you know international alignment between this set of factions goes back decades and decades and decades, if not probably longer than even a hundred years. Um, it's the same network of factions. You've got you know right wing factions in Europe. You've got right wing and organized crime factions in Russia, factions in China that are opposed to the Communist Party, and then you have this very clear, you know, sort of uh, anti-communist faction in the United States that's existed for decades and decades and decades and really hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, it's the business plot people, the National Association of Manufacturers, the American Legion, the John Birch Society, the Council for National Policy. It's the same people. It's just, you know, over and over and over again. Exactly. But it's the same exact network of interests. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an international problem. And, and, and right now it's flaring up and, you know, we've got to get the devil back down into the hole. Exactly. Again, it's know. interesting just uh, buzzing up some things here, but Reichland, you know, here he is with Ben Carson at the White House Christmas party because everyone gets invited to the Christmas party by the uh, Secretary of uh, Urban Development and Housing. Up there at the top there, he sees a Russian wife. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but... There you go. They both speak Russian and both have connections back to Russia. And then and this next one on the right is him basically running the political operation for Michael Flynn, where he's endorsing a candidate for the election on behalf of Michael Flynn. You know, he's issuing these statements saying Michael Flynn endorses Tom Norton, whoever he may be. And this happens repeatedly throughout uh, Reichland's quite active Instagram and Twitter feed. You get the sense that, you know, he's, he's running the political wing of whatever Flynn is doing. And it's dangerous because it's obviously having an impact on a political level across the country. Yeah, and to hear Reichland describe it in his own words, uh, so, you know, the same Twitter researcher has unearthed video of Reichland, uh, some video interviews of his, where he has, uh, in his own words, described his role uh, in some of these processes. And mm. it's very interesting that, for instance, you know, after the election, he was casting about looking for ways to help and flew uh, into Pennsylvania mm. and started working with uh, some of the, the attorneys there to try to find ways to you know, combat the election results and so forth. But then he, he said he stepped back and saw himself, uh, he saw his role a little bit differently. And he said there are people who are working on individual le legal aspects of this, but that wasn't his strength. And he basically said that, you know, his strength is big picture. And then he went on to discuss uh, the irregular warfare experience that he had in the military mm -hmm. and to discuss sort of this 
almost asymmetric warfare kind of approach that we've been seeing. And then in later videos, we actually see him say, describe multiple plans that they have in place, you know, contingency plans and such, going through the legal strategy. And he introduced Operation Pence card on December 23rd, and Donald Trump retweeted him. No, on December 23rd. This is a really important thing that you're you're describing here. So Operations Pence card, like the former vice president's name, is is because they had various scenarios gamed out, you know, whether it was Eastman or Reichlin or together. It seems to me these might have been working together. They seem to be operating under very similar sort of ideas that, you know, they, they were proposing different scenarios in which to keep Donald Trump in power. And one of them involved the insurrection of January 6th. Um, and then aspects of that involved something called the Pence card. So what was the Pence card specifically? That the Pence card is essentially exactly uh, what we saw in the Eastman memo. And the Eastman memo essentially laid out specifically uh, the process that he was using to pressure Mike Pence. And they essentially are saying that all the power is in Pence's hands and that they have these obscure, you know, uh, constitutional remedies that allow Pence to take control of the process and send elector slates back to the states and have them resend their own elector slates that would actually support Trump instead of the ones that they contested. This all hinged on states actually contesting their results, which thankfully did not happen because there were some people who care about democracy enough not to do that. Uh, Republicans and Democrats, uh, thankfully, on the state and local level that kind of blocked that aspect. But if that aspect had happened, that would have been part of the plan. And uh, so the Pence card operation was essentially describing Eastman's memo to pressure influence and pressure Pence into refusing uh, these various states electors. And What's really interesting is that, as I said, t- Trump retweeted Reichland's Pence card operation tweet on the 23rd. And then the very next day, he called Eastman when Eastman was on vacation and spoke with him uh, at his family home wherever he was uh, on vacation uh, and, and talked to him on Christmas Eve. It and, does seem to me that all these things coincide. I mean, you can't sort yeah. of look at Reichland and Flynn and, and then, you know, the meeting that Flynn had with uh, Sidney Powell at the White House on the 20th. These are all... Uh, events on a timeline which coincide for one operation we saw it's of January 6th we saw it happen in front of our eyes and there's more to it obviously it's still going on but this is much more than just a bunch of Republican congressmen in the house uh, not following the rule of law here this is a a big operation external from the representatives in the White House that involves many questionable characters from Eastman to Giuliani to Sidney Powell to this Reichland character operating in illegal ways at many times. Certainly it feels like a lot of the things that they might have been doing were illegal and coercing and pressuring local officials to act in certain ways. It feels like we're in the middle of a mob type operation to force a political change in America through sort of organized criminal means. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that's exactly really, you know, what the evidence seems to point to. And I I also just wanted to really briefly highlight that a lot of the activity that, uh, you know, this network has been pursuing seems to now being pushed through the promotion of cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of what went on with January 6th seems to have been tied in with this historical gripe over the gold standard, which again, that's why I keep saying this goes back to 1933, 34, 1980. Um, you know, this keeps coming back up. And so now with all of this crazy buzz that you're seeing around crypto is, is seems to be tied into the same set of operations. You know, we've got the debt ceiling limit that's coming up on December 3rd. And uh, they seem to be curious about what would happen if we didn't raise the debt limit. Um, mm-hmm. I think ultimately they probably will. 
but there may be a lot of chaos that comes over the next few weeks as a result of that pressure to, um, you know, see what happens if we don't. Well, the one thing that, that worries me to align to what you're saying here is you've got the, if you've got politicians under so much pressure, whether it's personal pressure, financial pressure, or just general pressure from their funders, who knows where it's coming from, but they're under so much pressure to behave in certain ways that they could do something that's very dangerous to the country where normally these representatives might not operate in this way, but considering the tactics and the effect they've had so far, you know, leading up to things like the, the insurrection, it could be that they do something dangerous, that we're still in a, in a state of, of yeah. some sort of, you know, conflict or war where you've got unbelievable pressure that's not allowing the normal course of democracy to proceed. Yep. And, you know, I think if you look back historically, this is exactly what uh, Larry McDonald was talking about doing with Western goals mm -hmm. when he created that in 1980 as a private intelligence agency to use, you know, any means necessary to gather dirt on Americans so as to be able to exert control over them. Mm -hmm. And that's why something like Palantir is like the direct ideological successor to something like that. Now, you know, who knows? you know, what kind of dirt has been brought to bear uh, on different people for different reasons. But I mean, that seems to fit the evidence based on what we've been seeing. And it certainly matches what, you know, Mr. Stern was claiming in terms of the desire and willingness to use intelligence to move people to specific outcomes. So I think, you know, we kind of need to go under the assumption that we are under attack of this kind and that democracy is not exactly intact at the moment. Mm -hmm. Really unstable the situation we're in right now. And the I think the tendency for everyone is to imagine that we're in a, everything's okay. You know, let's have arguments about the BBB and the infrastructure bill. I don't think that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, these global forces impacting our local politics to create this dysfunction and chaos that is far greater and far more significant than what's happening inside the capital, you know, and, and more troubling because, you know, we basically got a political party that potentially is under, is being kept hostage. And I have no sympathy for the Republicans at, at this point, but I still feel like they could be under the equivalent of a hostage situation where they've been held against their will to act in certain ways against their will. I think we've seen this too. And, and I want to go back a little bit to the Eastman memo and the Pence mm -hmm. card. Um, because I think we have to take that along with the Jeffrey Bosser Clark letter. Mm -hmm. I think if we look at the letters that you know were going on between A. G. Rosen and Jeffrey Clark, he was basically saying to the you know acting attorney general, mm -hmm. you know, you should really sign this letter because you know if you don't, I'll become attorney general. So there's a little bit of muscle, you know, strong arming in that sense as well. And I think that the two things really need to work in concert with each other. I think if you look at point one of the Eastman memo. That kind of brings us into, well, what if Pence is unavailable? Well, okay, we knew that Pence, you know, potentially had the potential to be unavailable. We talked about that earlier. Secondly, they said that, you know, Chuck Grassley would be, you know, as the Senate pro tem, he, you know, what was the plan for him? Point two in the Eastman memo had to do with the slate of electors. And I think that goes directly to the Jeffrey Bosser Clark letters as well. It is really interesting that they really have all these scenarios gamed out. And I don't believe that this is just the, the GOP in, in the House determining all of this. I think you've got a much bigger operation, as we've discussed today, that goes far wider than this. We only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, Aaron, maybe you want to uh, give us your, your thoughts here as we wrap the show on, uh, and this is obviously just a first part of a, a much longer conversation and investigation into what really happened on that day. But what are your thoughts on today's uh, content? Uh, absolutely. And so I think it's really important to be talking about this first off, because I think these are some of the contours of what we are going to see touched on. At least I hope so, because the, the evidence seems to indicate that uh, this is, you know, a part of the story that we all need to learn about. Right. Mm -hmm. And based on what I've seen from the January 6th committee subpoenas, 
they're on track and they're looking in the right places, it seems like to me. So I'm, I'm very hopeful and optimistic there. Um, I'm not someone who thinks that any of these investigations are going to make us 100% happy and just, you know, be a dream come true with puppy dogs and rainbows. And there are going to be, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be what everybody wants, but I, I have a really good feeling that they're, they're looking in the right places at least. Right. Mm -hmm. um, especially with the, as I said earlier, the, the distance that they're going back, the time frame that they're reaching back to in terms of uh, looking for this information. So overall, I'm hopeful of my, I am someone uh, on the DOJ side and the Garland side, I'm someone who, I, you know, I see things happening there. And I, while I am frustrated by lack of action on some fronts, I also know that if DOJ were the kind of DOJ that we want to have, we're pursuing all these investigations all the way to the top, exactly the way that we want it to be, it would look exactly like it does right now, mm -hmm. ideally. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'd like to see some action on Bannon. I must say that's taking a little yeah. time. Uh, well, that was my second part of that, yeah. is that I have to make an exception with Bannon and Flynn because I think what they're doing is dangerous and they are still trying to incite a lot of things that, that need to be stopped. Yeah, and certainly involved in, in our current politics every day. Aaron, this is everyone have a chance to wrap up, but where can people find you on Twitter? It's uh, it's at clearing underscore fog. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I created a the clearing fog clearing underscore fog account. Uh, it's just kind of I, I try to be disciplined there and stay on message to, it, to the extent that I can. It's uh, a very it's a very good feed, and of course we should mention at Vision Surreal, who's uh, I can't remember his current handle, but they, it's at Vision Surreal is the Twitter handle. Uh, it's very good. It's just very good, full of information regarding all of this. Joe, everyone can find you at, at Dempsey2. That's that right. Um, Dempsey2, T-W-O. And Dave, I'm going to give you the last word here. You know, as you see us going forward, firstly, people can find you at Dave Troy, D-A-V-E, Troy, T-R-O-Y. And feel free to mention anything else you want to use uh, to market. But, you know, uh, where are we? Are we in a healthy spot? Are we, are we still very much in, in, in the eye of the storm? Well, I think from my perspective, the one thing that I feel a little bit of anxiety about is, you know, like what Aaron mentioned about Bannon and Flynn. I mean, those two guys are really doing some dangerous stuff right now, and they're continuing to cause ongoing harm. Uh, I would really like to see something happen with both of them soon in terms of just curtailing their ability to incite violence and division. But, you know, that said, I do think that what Aaron said is right, that, you know, what we're seeing is pretty consistent with a DOJ that is behaving responsibly and paying attention to the rule of law and all of that. I, I am worried about the propaganda aspects of the fact that people feel like the rule of law is eroding and that, uh, you know, uh, standards are eroding and, and that things really aren't being followed up on properly. And I think that that can have a very demoralizing effect that if these actors are allowed to continue, could be exploited to great effect. And so I think that in that manner, we're in a very precarious position right now. But I hope that that uh, you know, the boat is listing a bit right now, but ho hopefully we'll see that corrected over the next few weeks and people will start to feel uh, a little bit more confidence in terms of how this is going to play out. But I also am really kind of glad to see that there is a little bit of awareness starting to develop around the history of this and the fact that this isn't an isolated incident. It's not really about Trump per se. It's about libertarianism and about the Kochs and the Mercers and their history with libertarianism and the overall uh, takeover of the Republican Party by the extreme right-wing libertarian movement that really got off the ground after World War II. 
So, you know, I think that's all good context. And if people want to read more about, you know, the stuff that I'm looking into, I'm really trying to look at that larger long-term history. So uh, I do a a weekly newsletter that folks can read at davetroy.medium.com and you can sign up for a weekly email on that. Which is also excellent. And uh, I think your point is really valid. You know, we have been talking the in the Twitter, you know, years now, almost it seems about what this is really all about and the history and the context. And then, you know, I remember having this conversation you know, over a year ago about how dangerous uh, an insurrection would look like and what an insurrection movement would look like under Trump and what would happen if the November elections weren't taken seriously. And almost all those things have happened without fail because that is the way that these movements take shape. So we've seen this in other parts of the world. We've seen how they work and we're, we're in the middle of it, maybe even in the early parts of it. If we don't act now, we run the risk of being in a very precarious situation. You know, we still have our functioning democratic government, but it's being eroded every day that uh, Bannon and Flynn, Reichland, all these people are running around in small ways and in big ways, you know, disturbing the way democracy is meant to work. Because every time they do that, they take away someone's vote, they take away someone's voice, they install somebody who's going to be a problem down the line that may not seem so serious now, but next November when we need uh, that person to certify an election and they've installed somebody who's corrupt, we're going to really feel the impact of that. So every day that these guys are allowed to continue this operation, uh, certainly that Bannon and company and uh, and Flynn are allowed to continue operating in, in ways that we see and we don't see is, is incredibly dangerous. So I, I hope everyone at, at home takes this to heart and, and continues to do the, the enormous work that they're doing everywhere in highlighting all of this. And I congratulate all the three of you for, for doing the same, because I think it is so important that people like you are out there taking note, making sure that people are aware and that everyone else is amplifying that and, and that it is good to see uh, the um, the that various investigations are now looking at this very differently, certainly far differently than they were with a, with a much narrower vision that they were on January 6th and, and around that time. People are beginning to see a much broader uh, view of what's been happening. And I think that augurs well for, uh, for the outcome of this, of this investigation and the DOJs. So on that note, thank you very much to the three of you. Thank you for being here on Narrative tonight. We'll be back tomorrow night. We'll be talking about uh, the Ghislaine Maxwell case. That'll be really interesting, plus a lot more. So uh, we'll see you all tomorrow. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good night. And thank you to you at home for supporting Narrative. We'll see you tomorrow night. Have a good night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.